0: We're still marching through Luke, so you can get to Luke chapter 6. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. One of my favorite photos of our, at least two of our boys, was taken a few years ago on Easter Sunday. And that's sort of a tradition in our house. We try to get a photo when we look nice together at church. In fact, Wayne was our photographer this last Easter But a few years ago, I don't know, Harrison was probably two, Brennan was probably around four or five, and I I set Harrison, I wanted a picture of just the boys, so I set Harrison, Calvin wasn't around yet, in Brennan's lap, and I gave him two very specific commands. Hold on to your brother and smile. And so I step back, and while I'm stepping back to get this photo, Harrison begins to slip. And he begins to fall, but Brennan is so focused on the commands that he begins to squeeze tighter and tighter, and he's got this big smile, and the picture is Harrison dangling like this, and he's trying to obey too, and Brennan's there with his big smile. He had heard the rule, but he had missed the intent of the rule that Harrison might be safely secured on his And I think in our passage this morning, by and large, that's what the Pharisees are guilty of. They've heard the command, but they've missed the intent of the command. So they're like, as if they're strangling their fellow Israelites, strangling their brothers with their regulations, all the while thinking that they are obeying God, that they are keeping the heart of the law. And so Jesus uses this, this moment, it's a confrontation, we've been talking about the, the opposition to Jesus rising and rising and rising, and as we said, it's going to come to a head in our passage this morning. You heard Paul read about it, and so Jesus uses this confrontation on the Sabbath day to demonstrate his authority. And so there's two paragraphs we're going to look at this morning. I think they're related by this Sabbath theme and what Jesus is up to in the midst of it. So the first point comes in those first five verses. That the Son of Man, Jesus, possesses divine authority over the Sabbath. I'm going to read those first five verses again for us. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain... Rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of... The Sabbath. As we've seen as a typical pattern of Luke, the first one or two verses of a given paragraph are are often dedicated to setting the stage of the events that he is about to record. And you'll you'll see some hints and some details that are going to foreshadow what is about to happen. And so it's an important detail right off the bat that this is a Sabbath day. As many of you are aware and know, the Sabbath day was um, commanded in God's law. It was a day of rest for Israel. A person was allowed and expected to work six days a week. And the seventh day, no work was to be done. The Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday, and it would end at sundown on Saturday. You you probably also remember or recall that this this Sabbath rest was patterned after creation. God did all the work of creating in six days. He spoke and and it came into existence. And on the seventh day, he ceased from working. He didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he was worn out from creating God is all-powerful, which means he can create the universe in six days and not expend an ounce of energy that he needs to recover. He rested for two reasons. One, the work was done. He rested because the work was done. And two, he rested to set an example for us to rest. So this was patterned after God's work, primarily because the work was done. There was no more work to be had. Sabbath-keeping then became a part of the law. It became a part of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, God commands, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, the animals get... A rest, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Again, this is rooted in creation. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. So it's on this Sabbath day, a day of rest, a day to cease from working that Jesus is walking with his disciples through a grain field and as they're passing through, the disciples are plucking some of that, they're rubbing it in their hands to separate you know, the chaff and they are partaking of the grain, they are eating of this field. Now this isn't some scandal where the disciples are stealing from another man's field. This was allowed in the law. This was commanded in the law. You could read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Landowners were to permit people passing through their field to partake of the field. But God warned, don't bring your sickle with you. Like you can eat what you need. I love I mean it reveals our heart to see how specific God has to be. Like, if you have land, let that guy eat some of it, but don't bring your sickle and harvest his whole field it teaches us something i think of our own hearts but this is what the this is what the disciples are doing they're partaking of uh, a legal command given in the law and so these these pharisees they're, they're watching this they're seeing this and these are the ones that that love to add to god's law but they aren't they aren't mad because they're they're eating They're not being accused of stealing. They're mad because they are working on the Sabbath. This is the source of their anger. This is a violation of the Sabbath. This is work you shouldn't be doing. That's what the question is in verse 2. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? This is an accusation against the, the disciples and against Jesus, the you there is Plural, y'all, what are y'all doing? You guys, why are you all doing this unlawful practice? You see, by the time Jesus is physically present in the first century, the Pharisees, the scribes, and other religious leaders, they've gotten so a hold of the Sabbath, And they'd added regulations and added regulations and added regulations so that it had become a burden. It was was an oppressive day for the people. In fact, one ancient Jewish source described the situation this way. The rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For Scripture is scanty and the rules are many. Many. Something that was meant to be a blessing, something that was meant to serve the people would become a burden due to over-regulation. And so they had this this source, this document that kind of detailed what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. For instance, according to tradition, you weren't allowed, if you had a dirt floor, which almost everybody did, you weren't allowed to pull a chair back because it might create a divot in the ground, and that's plowing, which is work. You weren't allowed to walk more than 3,000 feet past your home. Some of you wouldn't mind that law. But you know, what happens when you add burdensome regulation, burdensome regulation. Then you got to create wiggle room. So they created kind of a funny uh, way to get around it. They said, well, you can't go more than 3,000 feet, but if you lay a rope or, or a stick in between two, like a tight alleyway or between two homes, if, if you lay a rope there, that will be like your doorway, and you get an extra 3,000 feet at that point. Probably some uh, you know, high-profile religious leader needed to get to his friend's house 4,000 feet away, so he created a loophole. So the Pharisees, they're appealing to this, to this tradition, not to Scripture. According to their standards, the disciples of Jesus then are, are offending in sort of a quadruple offense. They're reaping, they're threshing, they're, they're winnowing, and they're preparing food. That's a, that's a quadruple offense. Now let's take a couple or like one minute, let's make a couple quick points before we get into Jesus' reply. The Pharisees, and we'll see this even in our next paragraph, at this point, they are clearly looking for ways to entrap Jesus. It's as if they have spies set out to track Jesus' disciples, to try to capture them, something to undermine Christ. One violation And we can discredit this guy once and for all. We can get him off the scene. And then one other thing to notice uh, before we look at Jesus' answer is that even though the disciples are the ones eating, um, Jesus is, as always, the target of the Pharisees. So the disciples are eating, Jesus becomes the, ta- the, the target. They want to entrap Jesus by entrapping his disciples because Jesus is a leader and he's allowing their, his guys to do this thing that is a violation according to them. And so we see then Jesus re- replying in verse 3. That's why I say, I think their target is Jesus because Jesus is the one that answers And it's here, I think, in Jesus' answer that we get the main thrust, the main point of this paragraph. And he begins with a rebuke, a rebuke with a hint of sarcasm. He asks the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones who had given themselves over to the study of the Old Testament, have you not read? Of course they've read. But Jesus is is rebuking them. He's undermining them. Surely you've read this, haven't you? Well, the Pharisees had read the story that Jesus is going to reference, but they failed to see its meaning. They failed to understand. So Jesus cites a narrative from 1 Samuel chapter 21 where David is being pursued by Saul. Saul, because of jealousy and because of The wickedness of his own heart wants to put David to death. And so David and his men are on the run and they come to what would be the tabernacle. The temple's not constructed yet. Solomon would oversee the construction of the temple. They come to the house of God, the tabernacle, and they ask the priest on duty, Ahimelech, we need some food, we're we're starving to death. And Ahimelech says, well, we don't have any regular food on hand. All we have is the bread of the presence. Well, what's the bread of the presence? It's called holy bread in 1 Samuel 21. or Yeah, First Samuel 21. It consisted of 12 loaves of bread that were baked, and they'd be placed before the presence of the Lord. It represented the covenant that God had made with the 12 tribes of Israel. And the bread would be replaced every Sabbath day. And so after the bread was replaced, then the priests could partake of the old bread. The priests were to partake of the old bread. Again, if you're interested in reading more, Leviticus 24 kind of lays out the law as it pertains to the bread of the presence. You know, some have tried to, to soften the narrative in 1 Samuel and say, well... It wasn't really the bread of the presence that was given to David. It wasn't really the bread of the presence. And, and so David wasn't asking for something that the law said he couldn't have. But that, if we go there, and that's, that's, the text is so clear, if, if we go there and we try to do this thing we sometimes we do, we try to protect God from himself you know, by saying, well, surely this can't mean this. It undermines the whole point that Jesus is is about to make through David, and we'll see that in a minute. But Jesus actually strengthens the the command. In Leviticus 24, it says, the priests eat the bread. And so Jesus goes uh, even further. He strengthens the command, getting to the intent of the command, saying that only the priests, only the priests are allowed to eat the bread. And so in brilliant fashion, Jesus is pinning the Pharisees into a theological corner. Back to the narrative, and then we'll figure out what Jesus is doing. Ahimelech says, you know, you know I can't give you this bread of the presence if your men are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So David assures Ahimelech that his men are clean, and then Ahimelech gives the bread to David, and King David distributes the bread to his men. And so we ask, what in the world is going on? Jesus is holding up David as an example, even as David seems to be sidestepping the law. Well, Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, they kind of pause here and they make a point about the scope of the law. The scope of the law was not so that David, the anointed king, would starve to death while Ahimelech says, well, I've got a bunch of bread in here, but you've read Leviticus 24, haven't you? So The other two accounts, they kind of pause and they take time to make this point um, that compassion and mercy and love are what God desires, and He would not have Ahimelech let King David starve to death while he has bread in the temple. But that's not where Luke goes. Luke is not interested in making that point, at least not yet. He'll kind of make that point in the next paragraph. He doesn't, he doesn't go there. He sticks with a, with a different emphasis. Remember, Luke told us in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that his goal is to write so that you may have assurance concerning the things of Jesus. So we're not surprised that Luke focuses like, like a laser on the authority of Jesus. Jesus. You see, I don't think we can understand the way Jesus is using this story apart from verse five. And he said to them, "The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Now we're in a position, I think, to understand why is Jesus using this narrative? Where is Jesus going? I think what, what Jesus is doing is, David is not some ordinary guy who wants to treat God's house as if it's a bakery. He's not your average Joe walking into the house of the Lord and saying, hey, I could use some bread here. David had been selected by God himself to be the future king of Israel. He was anointed by God. And the king of Israel was meant to serve as a representative uh, uh, to the people. He was to obey God and lead the people to obey God. And it's in this uh, status that David approaches the priest as a representative king. David exercised his authority in receiving the bread and distributing it to his people. David invokes his privilege as God's anointed, and Ahimelech doesn't argue with the king. Not only that, but when when David insists for the bread, he he speaks of the holiness of his mission. Give me the bread because we are on an important holy mission. When Ahimelech presses David, are you sure your men are ceremonially clean? David says, the vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy It's David's status as the representative and his mission that grant him the authority to distribute the bread to his men. Ahimelech consents, gives the bread to David, and David distributes the bread. So I think what Jesus is doing, he's he's arguing from the lesser to the greater than. If David was granted on this occasion because of his authoritative representative position, how much greater is the authority of the Son of Man? Jesus is the privileged representative. He is the Son of David in Luke 1. He is the one who is greater than David. He is the one who will rule on the throne of David forever. And so he has the right. He has the authority to be the interpreter of the law. He has the right to decide how this law is meant to be administered. He becomes the interpreter. God, as we know, had given the law. So for Jesus to claim authority over the law, it's his claim to be divine. Divine. It's a a point to his own divinity and his own power. Only God can have authority over the law that God has given. So Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The emphasis falls on that word Lord. It's moved to the front of the sentence in the original. As Lord, then we might apply it this way. Jesus has every right to determine our lives. He has every right to require our obedience to him. So we refrain from saying silly things like Jesus is my co-pilot because that assumes that I've got a direction I'm going and Jesus is kind of there to help me get there. He's come to assist me in getting where I want to go. We submit this morning to the lordship of Jesus. He requires the the place of prominence in my heart and in my life. He has a right to say to us, as Lord, he has a right to say to us, be kind to those who aren't kind to you. He has a right to determine how I live. He has a right to say, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. He has a right to say, abstain from the lusts and the passions of the flesh. He is Lord. And He has right, He has every right to determine our lives. And the good news for us is that the, the Lord is not only authoritative, He is good, and that He gives us good commands. His commands aren't burdensome or, or harmful for us. So Jesus' status then and mission demonstrate His authority And implicit in his person is his right then to divide the law, to interpret the law. So Jesus isn't undermining the law, he isn't undermining the word of God here. He isn't saying that the commands God gives can be undermined by us if we think we know better. That's what, that's what the world would, would want us to conclude, that man, maybe I can't get around God's law here. He is arguing for his status, his authority, his position as the representative king, the savior, the messiah, God in the flesh and at the same time he's seeking to undermine the extra biblical requirements and regulations of the Pharisees. We know then you know we said that God is not only Jesus is not only authoritative but he's he's good and his commands are good. We know that we're not under the Mosaic law, we're not under the old covenant Yet yet over and over in the New Testament it's clear that that grace this forgiveness justification it doesn't then free us to live however we want when we are united to Christ by faith we are under obligation to love and obey our new lord and master we're under obligation to follow the royal law of love the law of Christ and so i think a question for us to consider this morning I think the question that this passage asks us is, how do I think about the New Testament moral commands that have been given to me by God? How do I think about the commands that God has given me? How do I think about his authority over my life? Because God's word is specific about how we should live, but for the one who is born again, it's not meant to be burdensome to us. In fact, when we live life in obedience to the will of God, when we live life for the glory of God, we are truly free. When we insist on living life our way, on, on our conditions, on our terms, we're like a fish who thinks, man, if I could just get up out of this water, I'd be free. We're never free when we walk in sin. We're only free as we, we, we do what God has created us and designed us to do, to live life under the will and the authority of God, and to make much of him in our words and our actions and our thoughts and our desires. God's word is not burdensome. It's, it's true, and it's sweet, and it's good. So Jesus, and he, he has the authority to be the interpreter of the law because he's the one who gave the law. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He determines how the law is administered, And in verses 6 through 11, then he demonstrates, he he claims this authority in 1 through 5, demonstrates this authority in verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this is another Sabbath day. But again, I think these two passages are tied together by that Sabbath theme. Jesus is found teaching in the synagogue. We've seen that this is a typical pattern of Jesus, to be teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath. When he healed the man with an unclean demon in Luke 4, he was teaching in the synagogue as was his uh, pattern. And so, again, Luke kind of hints at what's about to happen by mentioning that in the crowd there's a man with a withered hand as we're reading our Bible. We say, I bet that's an important detail. It is. And the Pharisees, they know there's this man there, and they know that Jesus has been going around, he's been healing, and so they're watching Jesus intently to see what he will do, how he will respond. It's as if, it's this weird they are begging him to heal this man on Sabbath so they might undermine him. Oh, I wish he would do this. So then we'd have him. Those of you who talk to other drivers on the road might understand that, oh, I I wish you would pull in front of me. Oh, can you believe it? He just pulled in front of me. You're you're waiting to be disappointed. You're waiting to be upset. You're getting yourself worked up. I, I think that's the attitude of the Pharisees. They aren't genuinely curious. Oh, I wonder what Jesus is going to do on the Sabbath with this man. They have made up their minds about Jesus at this point, And they are just waiting for a chance to unleash their fury and to undermine Christ. And so they're wondering, what will Jesus do? There's a man with a need here, but it's a Sabbath day. And according to the Pharisees, there are only three types of medical procedures you could do on a Sabbath. In their great mercy, they decide you could deliver a baby on the Sabbath. How kind. You could even save someone's life on the Sabbath, or the priest could perform a circumcision. That's it. That's all that was allowed according to the Pharisees. That's all you could do. And since the man with the withered hand doesn't meet the criteria, then, then Jesus should ignore the man with the withered hand. You can wait tomorrow. You can wait another day till your hand is fixed. Now imagine being in the synagogue, seeing someone there in need of healing. He, he's been... Crippled in his hand for who knows how long. Imagine the suffering he has endured. And imagine the only thing you can think is, not today, Jesus. Not today. That's the attitude. You see, the Pharisees, they, they make this tragic mistake of caring more about the rules, even rules they've constructed, than the one who gave the rules. They care more about the nuances that they've come up with than the rule giver. They've completely lost sight, again, of God's compassion and God's love and God's restoration. All they can think about is how they want to apply this specific law in this moment so that this man cannot receive restoration and deliverance. But as God in the flesh, Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of every heart, including the heart of those in the synagogue, that day, including the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes in the room. What I love about Jesus here is he doesn't back down. He doesn't shy away and say, you know, I don't want to upset him just yet. Knowing what they were thinking and knowing that they were seeking to entrap him and undermine him, knowing that they were indignant and furious with him, he calls the withered man to the front. Come down here, stand next to me. And the withered man obeys, he stands up and he goes, stands next to Jesus. And again, I'm sure at this point the Pharisees have that odd mixture of like, I'm I'm angry, but man, I think we've got him. This might be a relief in some sense. They think that Jesus is falling for the trap. And at the same time, they're indignant because they think Jesus is breaking the law. Now notice the irony in the text. They want to use the law to entrap Jesus, the one who gave the law. How deceptive is the human heart? How deceptive is the human heart to want to use the law to entrap the one who gave the law? So just a quick application. I think we need to be careful that we don't use spiritual language to justify our sinful actions and thoughts. We are capable of seeking to twist God's word to accomplish our own sinful means. And sometimes we want to cloak that in spiritual language. We might spiritualize our lust and say, Well, God certainly wouldn't want me to be unhappy, so I don't have to remain faithful in my marriage. Or we might say, I know the Bible is calling me to love my enemy, but I just can't. I'm just incapable, as if God hasn't provided the grace to walk in necessary obedience. Or the classic spiritualization about gossip, pray for so-and-so. Or in the South, they say, bless his heart. Did you hear how he sinned last week? So let's not cloak our, our sinful desires and spiritual language and try to justify ourselves before the Lord. As the man stands with Jesus, then Jesus addresses the Pharisees in verse 9. and Not to, not to imply that Jesus is using this guy, because he's, he's about to serve this guy. But for lack of a better word, this, becomes a sort of, this man becomes a sort of object lesson as he addresses the Pharisees in verse 9 in the form of a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? Is it lawful to save a life or to destroy it? You see, the Pharisees' view of what Jesus should do in that moment had totally trumped the law of love in their zeal, and they were zealous. The Pharisees were zealous, and in fact, some of their zeal was almost pointed in the right direction. Some of their zeal was almost good and right. You see, the Pharisees understood that there were curses for disobedience and there are blessings for obedience and we're under this Roman occupation and God has been silent for so long. You know what? If we would just get more serious and if I could get you and you and you to, to kind of walk with me, then maybe we could get out from underneath the curses of disobedience. Some of them were zealous in that way. Some of them, uh, if, we're, if we're gracious, were It was an attempt to turn Israel back, but they missed, they missed what God would have them do to turn back. They were blinded. They missed that true repentance was necessary. They missed that turning to the Lord was necessary, not outward ritual, not adding to God's law. They were to repent the way the prophets called them to repent, rend your heart and not your garments, Joel said. Quit doing these outward displays and pretending to be repentant. They thought an outward adherence to extra-biblical law would, would turn God's heart back towards them. So they placed burdens then on the people that the Bible doesn't. In their zeal, and Paul says that, they're were, they were zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. In their zeal, they miss God's good and kind intention for the law. They sought to impose a law that brought harm and not Good. And that's what Jesus is accusing him of. You seek to bring harm to this man. So is it lawful or not to do good or to do harm? Jesus' question exposes the heart of the Pharisees as well as sets the stage to defend what he is about to do. You would bring harm upon this man, that he says to the Pharisees. You would destroy this man, allow him to continue in a state that is harmful and hurtful to him i will do good to him i will do good to this man in a way that honors the law see the purpose of the sabbath as we said was to keep people from working 24 7 without rest it was a time to contemplate god and it was a chance to demonstrate one's trust in god and reliance on him alone it was never intended to keep someone from doing something good on the sabbath it was never intended to keep someone from delivering someone or restoring someone or saving someone during the Sabbath. So Jesus says, I will restore him in a sense. I will deliver. I will save his life in a, in a, in a sense. And Jesus is essentially asking, why wait? Why would I wait till tomorrow because today is the Sabbath? Why would I not do good when given opportunity on the Sabbath? So what Jesus is about to do is good and it's right and he does not care what the Pharisees say about what he should and should not do in this moment. And so Jesus looks around at the room. Imagine the the tenseness of the moment. The Pharisees anxiously awaiting Jesus' next move. Jesus, his, his heart filled with pity and compassion and even righteous anger and justice, looks at everyone in the room. And suddenly the action is then kind of jerked back to the man with the withered hand as Jesus commands him, stretch out your hands. And the man does what was impossible. Just a few seconds ago, he stretches out the hand that doesn't stretch. He is completely healed. What a miracle. The man with the withered hand has stretched out his hand. Jesus heals the man visibly and heals the man publicly, and now the Pharisees are in a really tough spot. They are sure that Jesus did wrong by healing this man. But even the Pharisees would have to admit that, that man, what we just saw was God's work. Only God could have done what just happened. This man was healed, and God alone can do that sort of miracle The miracle demonstrated, for those who had eyes to see, the miracle demonstrated God's approval of what just happened. God didn't help Jesus' sin. So even for someone who didn't truly understand who Jesus is, that he's God in the flesh, if they were honest, they would have been forced to admit that God did this through Jesus, even if they didn't know who Jesus was. If they were honest, they should have been willing to admit that God did this through Jesus. But the reaction of the Pharisees is not a humble acknowledgement of their sin. It isn't a humble acknowledgement of their wrong position on the Sabbath. It isn't Peter's reaction. It isn't the leper's reaction who both fell down before Jesus. It isn't the joy of Simeon who, who, who held the baby Jesus and praised and blessed God. It isn't even the sense of amazement and and fear that came over the crowd as Jesus healed on occasion. In the healing of the paralytic, the crowd was amazed and they were fearful. It's none of those responses, all of which would have been appropriate. The response is anger. This is a mindless fury. They are out of their minds angry. The very ones who should have known who should have been able to recognize, who should have been able to see that this is God's handiwork, they were filled with an irrational anger. And at this point, verse 11, they've they've seen and they've heard enough. They heard Jesus claim to have the authority to forgive sin. They saw Jesus and his disciples associating with sinners and tax collectors. They heard the message of repentance they heard the, the parable of the wineskin and the old wine skin and the new wine, or the new wine and the old wine skin. They knew that Jesus was bringing a, a message of repentance. Here he claims to have authority. He is Lord over the Sabbath, and he has the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. They have heard and seen enough. For the Pharisees, enough is enough, and they've had enough. And this marks, then, I think, a turning point in the way that that they interact with Jesus. They begin to conspire against him. The very ones who claim to know God and love God begin plotting the death of the Son of God. One thing that struck me as I was considering this passage, is that oftentimes in Luke, we've already seen this before, where Jesus would act in ways to kind of keep his fame from spreading too quickly, too initially, so that he might continue to do ministry. But also we said he, he, Jesus uses means to accomplish his will, and he has a, a date set where he will die on that cross. and So he's orchestrating the timing of his own death. And what strikes me in this passage is Jesus knew their hearts. He knew they were seeking to entrap him, and he knew that this would be the moment, the decisive moment, that set the Pharisees to conspire against him. This would start the countdown to his death. But there's a man in the crowd that Jesus can do, do good for. There's a man there that needs a healing touch from Christ, and so he acts, though it will cost him his life. Will cost him dearly. But we know this is this is part of Jesus' larger mission. He's not only come to do good for this man, he didn't not only put his life on the line for this man with the withered hand, his death was not an accident. He was it was the very reason he came to accomplish salvation for sinners through his death and resurrection. And it's in that death and resurrection that Jesus invites you this morning to rest. In him. Sabbath is a day of rest. And as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus has become for us, the book of Hebrews says, our Sabbath rest. Sabbath, you were to cease from working. And yes, it had really practical application, like much of the law. It keeps workaholics from working all day, every day. But ultimately, the Sabbath was pointing forward. It was not the be-all, end-all. It was pointing forward to what Jesus would accomplish for us. He would come. He would work perfectly obeying the will of the Father. He alone would would perform enough good works and live in such a way that the Father could look on the Son and say, I am well pleased with your work, with your life. Yet for our sake... And for our sins, he was put to death on a cross. And in his dying moments, he breathed out those words, it is finished. He accomplished salvation. It is done. The work is done. Like God modeled at creation, when the work is done, it's time to rest. Jesus has done the work. He has accomplished our salvation. Jesus now ascends to the right hand of the Father and sits there on the throne next to the Father. So, we stop, and we rest. We stop laboring, we stop trying to earn God's love or God's righteousness, but we believe. We believe in the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus in my place for my sin. That is, In fact, the warning in the book of Hebrews is to ensure, make sure, make sure that you are believing in that. That you are resting in the finished work of Christ. Simply hearing the good news is not enough. The author of Hebrews warns us, there, there's so many Israelites that heard about the rest in the promised land, but they never entered the promised land. They failed to believe They failed to trust, so we we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We rest. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest in Jesus' work for you. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so brilliant and wise, we could have never come up with this on our own that what looked like merely a practical law would point forward to the work of Christ and the the rest that we might have in him. And Lord, even now, we we do await being fully and finally in your presence. We long for that. May Jesus come quickly. Thank you for the chance to gather, to be in your word with your spirit, continue to work in our hearts as we ponder and contemplate your truth.